reminder this morning that no matter what you have done in your life, no matter how terrible, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how long ago it was or if it was last night or this morning, it, it all, every single bit of it, can be forgiven because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make sure you know that and hear that this morning. You don't have to earn your way to his favor. You don't have to put on righteousness and prepare yourself to receive the forgiveness of sins. It is freely offered through him this morning, every morning. But in particular this morning, as a reflection of that song that we just sung. So, His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and we don't have to earn favor with God through him. That is something to remind ourselves of every single morning as we get up and approach our day, that we've been given a gift that we can never earn through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, uh, we're done with Exodus. So we spent uh, almost this whole year in the book of Exodus. And what I typically do, it's become sort of a rhythm in uh, the, the preaching calendar for me each year, is when we finish up a book, which we often do in early fall or late fall, early winter, sometime around uh, October, November, December, we finish up a book of the Bible that we've been studying, and I uh, have some topic that I would like to address. And um, preaching through books of the Bible is our normal practice, and we do that the vast majority of the time, but... Every now and again, it is really helpful, I think, to sort of pull aside and take a topic and address that topic over the course of several weeks. Last year, in I think it was November and then into January, we talked about the gospel and we tried to define for you and for ourselves what the gospel actually is. What are we talking about when we talk about the good news? And if you've not listened to those sermons, I would definitely encourage you to go back to our website and pull those up and listen to them over the course of several days. I think there were four or five of those, uh, but um, it was a, I loved that study and I found it very beneficial for me personally. So I would encourage you to do that as well. But this morning we're going to, as you can see on the screen, we're going to jump into this topic and this series, which we've called Pursuing Peace in a Divided World. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I was working on this sermon this week, I, it's always for me a challenge on how to get these things going, right? Like how to start out a sermon. So oftentimes I'll use a story or an antidote or something like that, a quote. And so I'm working on this sermon this week and I'm thinking about how I'm going to get this thing going. And so I, I thought of all these different illustrations of the way our world is divided, the increasing polarization of our world, right? And I mean, there's tons of them. We're all experiencing that. And and there's been examples of that over the last couple of years, for sure. But every time I would think about some example of division or polarization, and I would think, okay, I can start out by talking about this, I would think, well, that's probably not a good idea. (laughs) I don't even want to mention these topics in public because the second I do, my brain's going to go down a certain path and your brain is probably going to go down a certain path 
And maybe you'll try to figure out which side of that issue I'm on because of the way I framed it up. And then you'll be wondering about everybody else and how they think about this issue. And so I just couldn't bring myself to talk about any of these things in public. There's no doubt. Maybe that's just my imagination, but I don't think so. There's no doubt that we live in a time where even saying a certain word or bringing up a certain person can put people on one side or the other in a very, very strong and distinct way, right? You're immediately suspicious of someone who has this opinion on this topic. We live in a very polarized, divided time. Everybody knows that. So here's my concern, and here's my heart for this whole series, and here's why we're doing this study. I am concerned pastorally that the culture around us, which is very divided and very polarized, has the potential to shape us as Christians. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And too often we become of the world without even realizing it. Now, it matters how we act out in the culture, right? It matters how you carry yourself in your workplace. It matters to the Lord what you post on social media. It matters how you handle disagreements with unbelievers. All of that matters. That's important, and I think the Bible speaks to that. But my primary concern for us as a church body, as a local church, is how we interact with each other. What happens in our relationships with one another? And so here's here's the concern. I don't want the culture out there forming us and shaping us and molding us so that we can't live together at peace and in unity within the local church. And shaping us to the point where we can't live at peace with one another even when we don't see eye to eye on a particular issue. Even when someone sitting over here thinks differently about this issue than you do over here. Now, I don't think right now there's not some major like undercurrent of division within the church body here that I'm trying to address without naming it publicly, right? Like there's not, there's not all this anger and rancor among people here at WBC. I think the Lord has been incredibly gracious to us over the last two years. Um, everyone has been kind as, as we've approached a variety of issues culturally. Everyone's been gracious for the most part. And, and that's, I don't think we have a bunch of divisions here in the body at WBC, which is just God's grace. But I also know that we live in such polarized times that it's very natural and would be very easy for us to bring the fight to church, right? Everybody's fighting out there, and we can be shaped to the point where we bring the fight to church. And I want to try to address that from Scripture and talk about this issue of peace within the body and peace in how we live with one another and how to pursue peace among ourselves when sometimes conflict does arise as it's going to because we do live in a sinful and fallen world. And so here's what I want to do over the next few weeks. I'm going to lay this out for you and show you where we're going. First of all, that's the title of the sermon for today. Here's what we're going to get to this week. We're going to start here. We're going to try to define what the Bible has to say about peace. Is peace a sort of 
squishy idea that we have inherited from the hippies? Did it all start with them? Those hippies and their peace symbols. And now when anyone mentions peace, it's some liberal, squishy, we all need to coexist together idea. Is that what peace is? I think today you will be shocked. Maybe you won't, but I think you'll be shocked at the amount of scripture that, that speaks to this topic of peace. I mean, to me, it was overwhelming as I went through this and looked this up and started to read on this. And so we want to define what biblical peace is today as best we can to get an understanding of this. Now, I think God puts a high premium on peace, as you'll see, and I think this is one of his ultimate goals for his creation. And as we'll see next week, after we define it this week, we don't have peace in the world. I mean, that is one of the easiest things to see. And oftentimes, we don't have peace with one another. You will have conflict with family, with friends, with church members, with coworkers. Conflict is going to happen, and it's probably happening for some of you right now. And so we want to talk about that. What disrupts the peace that we're supposed to have? If God's ideal and his goal is peace, as you'll see this morning, then why don't we have that? What actually causes the disruption of it? Now, I know the easy answer to that is sin, and that's true, but we want to go deeper than that when we talk about what particular sin patterns cause conflict and cause a disruption of unity and harmony. Why does this happen? And finally, the last couple of weeks of this, I want to give you some practical help in how to pursue peace. And so we're going to talk about attitudes that are necessary to pursue peace and be a peacemaker. And then we're going to talk specifically about actions to employ when you have conflict, as you will have, and I will too. What sort of steps do you take, practically speaking, to resolve that conflict? Hopefully this will be helpful for you inside the church and even outside the church as well. And so if I had to summarize this whole series and put it in one sentence, here's what I would say. We ought to pursue peace. Pursue. We'll talk about that word later, but pursue peace with one another because God values peace. Very simple goal for this. But through these next few weeks, I want this to be burned onto your heart so that you see the importance and the value of pursuing peace in your relationships with one another. Now, let's talk about what the Bible has to say about peace this morning and how the Bible defines that word peace. Now, when you're studying a biblical topic, let's say you pick the word love or, as we've done, the word peace or the word reconciliation, or whatever it may be, there can be a temptation to sort of look that word up in a Greek or Hebrew dictionary and find the definition and then think, okay, I've got it. I know what this means. And so you can't just do that in your study of a topic and make that the complete total sum of your study. However, having given that warning, there can be help in the definition of a word. And then when you take that definition and see it worked out in different contexts and different ways, it gives you a fuller and a richer understanding of it. And so let's start there with the words in Hebrew and then in Greek that are translated most often peace. The idea of those words in scripture as they're used has both a negative side to it and a positive side. When the Bible talks about peace, on the negative side, it means an absence of conflict. 
So conflict ceases. There is an absence of conflict. That is one way to describe peace from the negative side. And then on the positive side, the Bible uses this word peace to describe a state of harmony, a state of wholeness, and a state of concord or agreement. And so the negative is the conflict stops, and then the positive is there's a state of harmony and of concord between these two parties. And so those are some of the basic ideas of what the Bible has to say about peace, and this works itself out in four major ways in Scripture. And I want to show you these four, all right? Four ways that the Bible talks about peace. First of all, There is peace with God. God created human beings and all of creation to exist in a state of concord and harmony with him under his rule and reign. And so to be at peace with God means the absence of hostility. There is not a break in the relationship between the two parties, and on the other side, the positive side, there is an alignment of our purposes with his. We exist under him as we ought to. And there is in Scripture a wholeness, a completeness, and a sense of well-being that comes from being in a state of peace with God. Now, of course, we're going to talk about what disrupts peace next week. We've already mentioned that, but Understand at the most basic level for you and I right now as we live in the 21st century, peace with God only happens through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The absence of hostility and then a coming together in agreement and alignment of our purposes with him. The relationship has been restored. Reconciliation is a part of this later in that same chapter. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So peace with God is one way that the Bible talks about this this concept of peace. Second, peace with one another. Again, the same core definitions here. When we're talking about peace with one another, we mean the absence of hostility between the two parties and a state of concord and agreement and harmony between those two parties. Now, in Scripture, this can mean between two nations where hostility ceases, conflict ceases. This can be between two people, two church members. There are all sorts of ways that peace between people, between one another, is described in Scripture. There are so many verses and passages that address this sort of peace. But I'm going to mention two and show you two, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Psalm 133.1. doesn't use the word peace, but here's the idea. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When there's harmony, there's an absence of conflict, and when they're coming together and able to walk together in unity, that is a pleasant reality to exist in. And then in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 
Something funky happened there. There we go. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And so the exhortation there is to exist with one another within the church in a state of peace. Now, the third way the Bible talks about peace this morning is an internal peace. So we've got peace with God, sort of a vertical peace, a horizontal peace with one another, and then you've got an internal peace where you, in your heart and in your emotional state and your mental state, are able to be free of turmoil. So often in this sinful world, our emotions get tied up in turmoil. And it's like a storm and waves are crashing and we're a mess emotionally and mentally. And that's conflict within, right? Well, the Bible talks about having a sense of internal peace. And this is one of the things that we pursue and strive for. This is possible for you to have this sense of peace within your heart and within your soul. Again, let me show you one Old Testament, one New Testament. Very familiar passage to you, I'm sure, if you've ever struggled with anxiety. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. There's a a reality of tranquility there. When you trust God, when you're able to rest on his sovereign care for you, it brings a sense of, of peace and of tranquility. In the New Testament, Paul directly addresses anxiety and says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There aren't many clearer and better passages in the New Testament to help you with anxiety and worry in your life than this one. And if that's something you struggle with and you long for that internal sense of tranquility, that rest emotionally, go to this passage and meditate and pick this thing apart and pull it apart and consider how you can grow toward peace based on your trust in God and who he is. Internal peace is the remedy for anxiety. Fourth, the last way the Bible talks about peace here is a a general well-being. To say that someone is at peace means that their life is generally going well. They're existing in a state of peace. There's a harmony. Everything seems to be going in the right direction. Now, Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul uses this word at the beginning of almost all of his epistles. When we think of him using the word grace to greet people at the beginning of his epistles, but he often pairs that word grace with this word, peace. And he wants people to be in a state of spiritual well-being. And I think by extension also just physical, emotional well-being as well. So let me show you a couple of these. Romans 1. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Obviously, peace with God and by extension, a sense of well-being is something that Paul desires for these believers. The exact same wording there in Galatians 1. You could go on and on throughout Paul's epistles. Okay, so you got these four ways that the Bible talks about peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, internal peace, and then lastly here, this sort of general well-being where life is, is going well. It's not that there's no difficulties, but it's moving in the right direction as your relationship with God is established. Now, all four of these, when you bring these together, you get the Hebrew word shalom. This is the ideal. This is the ultimate state of peace here. When all of these come together, which we won't fully experience in this life, you get shalom. And one author describes shalom like this. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In English, we call it peace. But it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. Peace, it's harmony, it's concord. And the Bible says that this state of shalom and of peace is going to happen, and it will happen according to Isaiah through this child that is born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so Isaiah predicts this, that this will happen. And then in the New Testament, Paul says, this son of David, this Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will bring this about through his shed blood. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He brings everything in earth and everything in heaven under proper alignment to God. Everything is set in its proper place and things exist as they are supposed to be. That's what I mean when I talk about God valuing peace. This verse tells us, Isaiah and then Colossians together tell us that God's goal, his ultimate purpose for all of creation is peace. It's shalom. It's for everything to be reconciled to him, to be brought in alignment under his rule and reign. And he accomplishes that through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another author said it like this. In the biblical writings, peace is the wholeness 
that comes as a result of alignment with God's creative and redemptive purposes. Things are as they should be. So, let me remind you where we are and what we're doing. We're describing and defining the way the Bible talks about peace. And so we've seen four different ways the Bible talks about peace. And when you put those together, they result in shalom, peace. And that peace comes about through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also very important that you understand that the whole thing falls apart unless you have that first one on the list. Because of the disruption of sin, we ultimately can't have internal peace, peace with one another, and a sense of well-being, and we can't have shalom unless human beings are brought back into a state of peace with God. That is the most important way that the Bible talks about peace. All other aspects of peace flow from our harmony and reconciliation to God. God values peace enough to send his son to die in order to obtain it. So those are the ways the Bible talks about peace. Now, in this series, I want to zoom in on the second one of those, right? We tried to put the whole thing in context, so now let's zoom in and let's talk about peace with one another. If you, this morning, claim to be reconciled to God, if you, this morning, as Romans 5.1 says, claim that you are justified, you're declared righteous, and you have peace with God, if that is true of you, that you're forgiven of your sins, then you must value peace. And you must value peace with one another. Because God has orchestrated this whole thing In order to create peace and harmony and shalom and peace with one another is one aspect of this. It is a non-negotiable for a believer to value peace because this is the heart of God for his people. We are created to live in peace with one another. And then if there's conflict, if we move out of a state of peace with one another and there's conflict, which there will be, then we are to passionately pursue restoration of that relationship. When it's not there, we go after it. And we go after it hard because it's important to God. And so here's what has happened for you and I, if we're believers this morning. When we are reconciled to God, right? Peace with God is the top one on that list. Everything else flows from that. But if we are reconciled to God, then you and I are objectively placed into a family relationship with other believers. We are one in the body with other believers. And so there is a a unity there that is objectively true. Because we're united to Christ, we are united to one another. There is a A reality and a relationship that now defines us. Paul points this out in Ephesians 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." Jews and Gentiles, who had a very difficult time living in harmony, Paul says, have now been brought together into one body and have been made at peace with God, and therefore, objectively, they have peace with one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'm sure some of you have heard of, was a German theologian and pastor who lost his life to Hitler, was, uh, was put to death. Uh, under Hitler's regime just a few weeks before um, Europe was, was liberated. But he has a wonderful book called Life Together. It's a short little book that talks about this objective reality of our unity with one another and how we live life together and then how that works itself out. And he says that this Christian brotherhood, this family relationship is, an, is not an ideal, but it's a reality. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is that too often we have this dream or this ideal of what a community of believers should look like, and our ideal, our imagination about this community leads us to ignore the reality of the the relationships and the community that God has given us. He says it like this, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. And so what he's getting at here is there is an objective community that we have been placed into, and it is a gift of the grace of God. This unity, this re- these relationships have been brought together based on our common salvation and our reconciliation to God. And so we could say we have been put at peace with one another objectively, right? But bring that into everyday experience. Often there is not peace among the people. The objective reality doesn't play itself out and doesn't work itself out in our relationships with one another. And that's true because of our sin, because we live in a broken and a fallen world. And that is why the New Testament over and over and over again commands and exhorts believers to pursue peace with one another. I mean, it's unbelievable how often Paul talks about, and other New Testament writers talk about unity and peace and reconciliation among believers. I want you to see this this morning, and I'm not even going to hit all of them, but it'll probably feel like I hit all of them after we're done with this, all right? Somehow, somehow, we've lost this. We've lost it in our relationships with one another, as, as the church, the whole church, I'm not specifically talking about WBC, but we've lost the sense of importance of how vital this is in our walk with the Lord to pursue peace with one another. And we've certainly lost it in how we relate to those outside the church. God values people who pursue peace and reconciliation with others. And they do everything they can to live at peace with other people. But we love a good fight. And that tends to be what we pursue. Let me show you this as it relates to one another, and then the implications are far beyond the church. 
Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, based on the gospel and the calling that you have, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You can see here in verse 3, that last line there, there is an objective reality, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is an objective reality that we have, and then you can see the attitudes necessary to see that reality worked out in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Those are four powerful character qualities that we pursue in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It seems to me in my own life, and then maybe even in some observation, we give up on this too quickly. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I did everything I could. Did you? Everything you could? The image here, I think, is is of someone who is going to great lengths and great personal loss and great difficulty and trials to maintain peace. They are doing everything humanly possible. But too often, I lose peace and unity over the simplest things. Some ministry idea that I disagree or someone disagrees on, some political position with another believer that I differ on. And too often, we hold our own opinions in such high confidence, and we're so sure that we're right on this thing that we end up dividing over something that Christians can and will rightly disagree over. Paul addresses this in Romans 14. If you know anything about Romans 14, you know that this passage is over issues that Christians can rightly come to different conclusions on. I mean, there's literally instruction in the Bible on how to deal with these things. And that's what Romans 14 is. And Paul understands that Christians come from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of influences, All sorts of perspectives have shaped us and formed us. And so Paul addresses that. And he's not arguing here for some sort of moral relativity where we throw our hands up and we say, well, one belief is as good as another. I guess we can't really know. That's not what he's getting at in this passage. But what he is saying in Romans 14 is that there will be times when you have a conviction and it is different than another believer. You'll see something differently than I will because of my background, because of my influences. And that's going to happen. One Christian might believe very strongly in a particular school choice for their family, and another believer just doesn't have the same position. Paul wants us in Romans 14 to have 
the discernment to be able to see what issues can be faithfully disagreed over among believers and what can't. And then he wants us to live in harmony with one another. Look what he says at the end of Romans 14 here. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Those are two of the issues that can be disagreed over between believers, eating and drinking. That's not the substance of the kingdom is your position on those things, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ in this way with these character qualities is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Notice here, Paul is not just looking for a stalemate between believers, right? He's not instructing these believers to sort of know who thinks differently than them and sort of to like cast a glance at them out of the side of your eye and, and carefully watch them and, and to keep your distance from them and always be suspicious of them because they think differently than you do. What does he say? We are to pursue peace. Let us pursue peace, what makes for peace, and for mutual upbuilding. Think about that language there. We are to pursue peace. I looked this up, and this word pursue means to move rapidly and decisively toward an object to run, to hasten toward something. Could there be a better description of God pursuing reconciliation with you and me? To move decisively toward an object, to pursue it with everything you have, to hasten toward that object, to run toward it. That is exactly what he did for us. He ran like the father to the prodigal son. And so how can we receive his grace and his mercy in our sin and then not move rapidly and decisively toward other believers with whom we happen to have a minor conflict or disagreement? Pursue what makes for peace. Those are a couple of examples. There are so many more. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? They're, they're characterized by this quality that they bring peace in their relationships. They don't, think, they don't make things more difficult. They don't bring more conflict. They're not pitting people against each other. Instead, they're able to bring peace. They shall be called the sons of God. They are like God when they live this way. Hebrews 12, strive. There's another word that is not talking about a person being casual here. (laughs) Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James 3, talking about wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And he goes on. 
You're characterized as a person who experiences peace and then makes peace with others. 2 Timothy 2. Instructions to Pastor Timothy. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then lastly, this passage that Danny read this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and then he quotes Psalm 34 here, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To me, This is overwhelming. All of these passages. And so let me remind you of our main goal. I think this will make a little more sense now. We ought to pursue peace with one another because God values peace. You can see from the New Testament that God values peace. And the pursuit of peace is absolutely necessary because of what we're going to talk about next week. Because you and I have this sinister sickness that is at work within us, and it disrupts our relationships, and it brings pride and arrogance, and I always think I'm right, and I have the right position on this, and you're just plain wrong, and so of course we should have conflict with one another. And this sinister sickness causes every sort of disruption and difficulty. And so, because God values peace and because we so often experience conflict, we want to talk about that. We want to identify the malady that afflicts us, and we want to begin to take steps to putting it to death in our lives and to becoming people who love and pursue reconciliation and peace with one another the way the gospel calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who has pursued us and brought reconciliation and brought us into a state of peace with you. And our simple request throughout this series is that you will teach us and train us and shape our hearts and our our affections and our loves to be people who desire peace and reconciliation. Lord, we understand it's not always possible in this life. Often it won't be possible because of sin. But Lord, help us to follow the instructions of Paul in in Romans 12 as much as it lies within us. Help us to value and love peace and be people who are peacemakers in our relationships and in our lives, Lord. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for, for your word and the instruction we receive from it. Thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.